It is an absolute pleasure to be back here uh, on this stage. I'm, uh, I'm actually awed that Mac would entrust his flock to me, and I'll try not to mess it up. If I say something that, you know, y'all get all twisted up about, just come back and have Mac kind of clean it up a little bit, okay? <laughs> Don't leave. But I'm actually honored, and I thank you, uh, for letting Mac and Julie have some time off. Uh, they need to recharge and spend some time with their family and with each other, and I'm happy to do it, and I thank you, the church family, for allowing them to do that, but they will be back very soon. We're going to talk about something that uh, I think hits everybody. Football. <laughs> Am I the only one getting excited about football season? Yeah. And it doesn't matter which team you're backing, whether it's a junior high, high school, college, professional team. Right now, we all are excited because our teams are undefeated. <laughs> now, what's going to happen next is yet to be determined. T-B-D. We're not exactly sure how it's going to end up. But I will tell you this. If your team happens to go undefeated, that is a very, very rare thing. Even teams that win championships, college NCAA championships or professional basketball or football championships, rarely does a team go undefeated. As close as I have personally come to being on a team that almost went undefeated was my seventh grade year. That's right, the Caldwell Hornets. Yeah, little 2A school, about 90 miles from here. Our first day we showed up, our coach was an ex-Marine. He took us out behind the gymnasium. We never saw a football. He just ran us till everybody threw up. <laughs> when they did issue us equipment, we had to run, not walk, run a more than a mile from the junior high in Caldwell over to the high school because the junior high didn't have practice facilities. We would practice run our wind sprints, and then run, not walk, all the way back, full gear, to the junior high. If they had invented Gatorade at that time, I don't think they had, but if they had, we didn't have any. <laughs> if we had some, he wouldn't have given it to us. <laughs> After this seventh grade Navy SEAL training, <laughs> we then took to the field, and we started winning. And we didn't win by just one or two touchdowns. We would win by three, four, five touchdowns. Nobody scored on us for the first three or four games. And the first score, I'll never forget it, the third-string quarterback was in. He turned around. He didn't know who they hand the ball off to, and the other guy from the other team just took it and ran into the touchdown. We were tough, and we were good. And we got to the point to where we were pretty much expecting to win because we were that good. We were beating teams like A&M Consolidated and Westlake. <gasps> no, you didn't. Yes, we did. 1972, check the records, Westlake was a 2A high school. Yeah. Yeah. We showed up at Westlake in our old rickety bus from Lowell Caldwell, and we pulled up to the Westlake campus, and we thought the bus driver had taken a wrong turn and gone to UT. We had never seen digs like that. Rubberized track and all this stuff. We beat them. And we did really well up until the last game of the season. We had 21 players on our team. 
and we played Georgetown, and they had about 347 guys on their team. <laughs> and uh, they beat us 16-14. Hard to go undefeated. I played golf with a guy by the name of Sam Jones. He's not related to me, but if any of you know Sam Jones, you know he played with the Boston Celtics in the 60s. The Boston Celtics was probably the most prolific winning team that's ever existed in America. From 1960 to 1969, uh, they won 571 games. They won 87 playoff games. They won 22 of 23 playoff series. They went to nine NBA finals from 1960 to 1969. They won nine out of ten. From 1958 to 1966, they won eight NBA championships in a row. That's never been touched. They were prolific. And yet, they eventually lost. I'm going to tell you about a team that never loses. It has never lost a game in the past. It is currently winning today, and it will continue to win into the future. If you call yourself a Christ follower, you're on that team. And many of us who are Christ followers think of our Christ following as a ticket to heaven. We decide, we decide to follow Christ, we get our ticket, and we're going to heaven. But we don't often think of it in terms of the victory that we get right here on earth. And we're going to talk about that. And one of the things that you need to understand is how we get on the team, the team selection process. So let's look at that, if you would, if you open your Bibles, if you have them with you, to Romans chapter 8. Paul is writing a letter to Rome chapter 8, verse 29. And the first thing that happens in the selection process, process is that we are seen. God sees us. Verse 29 of chapter 8. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he, his son, Jesus, would be the firstborn among many brethren. So the first thing we see there is that we are foreseen. In some Bibles, it says foresaw. That is, he foresaw us before we even got here. I find that hard to believe sometimes, that he foresaw me before I even got here. And the picture here is of a recruit, recruit being recruited by a college scout. And these kids are playing high school right now. Sometimes a scout shows up in the stands, and the kid doesn't even know that they're being looked at. But the scout sees him and goes, I, I like that kid. I, I like the way he plays. And the second thing that happens in the selection process is that we're selected. He selects us. Roman chapter 8, verse 29, that same verse, it says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. So not only are we foreseen, but he pre-selects us. It's the image of when a scout goes and gets a recruit and brings them to the college campus and takes them into the locker room and he shows them a locker and that locker already has their name on it and there's a jersey hanging in it with their name on the back of the jersey and he tells the recruit, look, here's your uniform, your shoes, everything all your size. And he's basically telling them, this is what you're going to get 
we have a locker set up for you. All you got to do is say yes. It's an active thing. Now, I got to tell you, I, I still have some difficulty believing this. And I'm a believer. My dad was a minister, and I've been a believer a long time. And I just don't think I'm that special for him to have foreseen me and predestined me like he did his son. And by the way, we celebrate his son's birth at Christmas because we know that he was predestined. He was foreseen long before he got here. And we celebrate the fact that he was born. He actually got here. He actually fulfilled the predestination. But I just don't feel like I'm that special. Even though this verse says it's predestined just like the son Jesus who will be the firstborn among many brethren. And the many brethren is us. Now those of you who have heard me speak before up here, you know that I have an interest in my ancestral history. I just don't have enough time to track how far back I can go. But one of the things I did at the urging of a neighbor is I had my DNA analyzed for my ancestral history. And so I sent off to the company 23andMe. They sent me the package. This is a little gross, but I just spit in the cup. You mix it with the stuff, put it in the package, and send it back to them. And they send me, sent me back what makes up Bill Jones. And I'm going to share that with you this morning. Share Bill Jones. Okay. If you look at the color coding there, you'll see that obviously I come from Africa. Okay? You could probably have figured that one out without me showing it to you. But what you don't know and what I didn't know is where else my ancestral history comes from. 83.5% of me comes from, West, from Africa with 76.7% coming from West Africa. 3.7% Central and South Africa, 3.2% broadly Sub-Saharan Africa. 14.6% of me comes from European and Northern European, including 4.7% British and Irish and Wales, which is probably why I like Catherine Zeta-Jones. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Sorry, Mac. 7.7% <laughs> broadly Northern European and 0.2% broadly Southern European around Italy and Sardinia. And then 2% broadly European, they're not exactly sure where. And then the uh, gold color uh, area to the right up there on the map, 1.4% uh, from East Asia and Native America. And the Native American, of course, they've got in the uh, left-hand side in more of an orangey color, uh, with 0.8% Southeast Asian, 0.4% Native American, and 0.1% broadly East Asian and Native American. They're not exactly sure where. And then there's 0.4% unassigned. They don't know exactly where it comes from yet. Interestingly, I am 0.9% Neanderthal, <laughs> to which my wife goes, well, that explains a lot. Don't know what she means by that. Just because I wanted a man cave. <laughs> but when you see something like this, God had to go through a lot of trouble to get me here. 
And if any one of those things changes, and I don't know what those things are, some of those things may have been quite unfortunate, some of those things may have been quite loving and kind, but I don't know what they were, but those things had to happen for me to be here. And if any one of those things doesn't happen, it ain't me that you're looking at. It's somebody else that may kind of look like me. And so maybe, maybe he did foresee. Maybe he did set aside a locker for me. And if we can understand that, now it gets fun. Because the third thing that happens in the selection process is that he sends for us. Look at Romans 8, chapter, uh, chapter 8, verse 30. And these whom he predestined, he also called. He called. Now, when this says he calls us, this is not a passive thing. He doesn't just get us here and ask us to kind of wander around and bump into a relationship with him. He actively calls us by putting either people or events in our lives so that we will answer him. And sometimes those events are painful. So we'll look up. The picture here is of a recruit being actively recruited by a college scout. My oldest son was recruited. And they came to the house and told him all about the university. And then the coach came and told him all about the program because they actively wanted him to play on their team. And that's the picture that we have here. God is actively calling each and every one of us at some point in our lives to have a relationship with him, to come on to the team. And then the fourth thing that happens is he saves us or shapes us up. Romans chapter 8, verse 30. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. Now that means he gets us ready to play. There is no high school football player, I don't care how good they are, when they graduate from high school, that is prepared to play at the college level. No one. Nutrition, they need to start eating like the college demands that they eat. Training, they need to get in the weight room and train like the college prepares them to train. They need to be coached up with all of the coaches that the colleges are able to hire. The high schools can't. And they have to get experience playing at the speed of the college game. So I don't care how good they are. I don't care how good we think we are or how much good works we think we can do. We have a little thing that's called sin that makes us unqualified for this team. But God says, I got you covered. You see that guy over there? He's my number one recruit. His name is Jesus. And all you got to do is believe in him. All you got to do is do what he says and do what he does. And by the way, you don't have to spend one day in the weight room. Not one day. Because you can't work out enough. He's already got you covered. He spilled his blood for you already. So welcome to the team. Come on. And then... And just like that, that's the next thing. He celebrates. Verse 30. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. There's a celebration. The celebration happens immediately. I don't know when you accepted 
Christ, for those of us who are Christ followers in here, I accepted 40-something years ago. And it doesn't matter whether it happened 40-something years ago or if it happened last week. Whenever one of us accepts the call, there is a celebration in heaven. And let me describe the celebration. When you go to a restaurant here and they do the pan banging, you know, when somebody has a birthday, what do they do? They come out with the pans, they put a sunburn on your head, they sing happy birthday, take a picture, right? Y'all know that, right? It lasts about, what, 30 seconds, a minute? And at the most obnoxious place, maybe two minutes, I'm going to tell you about a place in the Caribbean. It's called Easy's. If you go to Easy's and you tell them you have a birthday, let me tell you what the celebration's like. First thing they do is they turn down the lights, they turn on the mirror ball, they crank up the music to disco club sort of sound, they, the staff comes out, they sing and they're dancing, they're doing all this stuff, and this goes on for 10 minutes. 10 minutes. It's obnoxious for those who aren't celebrating the birthday. But that's the kind of celebration that happens in heaven when someone says, I'm on the team. And the team celebrates as well. And the celebration is present and it's future. Now, once we get on the team, what happens? What happens? Well, that's to be determined. I don't know. Depends. But what I can tell you is that you're going to win. Paul, in this series of verses in Romans, asks a series of questions, sort of like the interviews that coaches go through for Big 12, the ACC, the SEC, and all these conferences here in the last two or three weeks. They all met in their annual meeting. And every coach for every team has to have an interview. And they always ask them about the teams, about this player and that player, and how many games you're going to win, and what about this, and what are your challenges? Well, Paul does the same thing for this team. He gives himself a self-team interview. And let's look at these five very interesting questions, and I think when we study them, we'll understand just how significant this team is. First question, who can beat you? That's Romans chapter 8, verse 31. If God is for us, who is against us? Pretty short interview, isn't it? We have a new guy, his name is God, he's on our team, it's not even going to be a contest. Yeah, but you don't understand my ex-spouse. You don't understand the relationship that I'm in now. You don't understand my competitor who lies to get sales that I can't get and I won't lie, I won't do it. You don't understand fill in the blank. And I still ask the question, we got God, who's against us? What does it matter? We're going to win. Second question, what will, and I put coach in mind, what will he keep from us? This is Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him, his son, freely give us all things? Is there anything that he thinks we're going to need, whether it's pads or shoes or shirts or whatever, that, he, that we think we're not going to get? He says the team that we're on as Christ followers, first of all, he gave us his most precious possession, his son, to die on the cross for our sins. If he gave us that, 
what would he leave off the table? Finances? No. Yeah, but you don't understand. I need the money now. College is going to start in the next couple of weeks, and I'm not sure I got enough for my kid to get through the first semester. It's all right. He's got this. He gave you his son, Jesus. Money is not an issue for him. Don't worry about it. We're going to win. Third question. Who can question our being, uh, our team membership? That's Romans 8, 33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Who can tell you and I that we don't deserve to be on the team or that we didn't experience something significant in our lives once we accepted team membership? Who's got that authority? A friend of mine has a son that was hit by an 18-wheeler while the son was on an ATV. My friend saw the whole thing. He was on a tractor. They were actually working. They weren't out playing around. They were working, and the son didn't see the truck. The father saw the truck, was trying to tell the son not to go. The son thought he said go and went out, got hit by an 18-wheeler. It knocked him 100 yards on this ATV. He said, when I got to my son, Bill, I don't, I don't care what anybody tells me. My son was dead. His eyes had rolled up in the top of his head. He wasn't breathing. There was no pulse. He said, I didn't have a doctor there, but I'm telling you, that boy was dead. And he said, I prayed to God. I said, please, God, give me my son. This is the only son I got. Please give me my son back. And he said, I felt something go through my body. And that boy, at that moment, opened his eyes and said, I'm okay, Dad. Now, who, who's going to question that? Who, who's got authority to question that? I wasn't there. I didn't see it. But I believe it. And the question is, who can question our membership on this team? No one. Fourth question. Who can judge us unworthy to be on the team? Romans 8, 33 to 34. God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Who's the one that says, we're not really good team players and we should be kicked off the team? You see, people see us stumbling and fumbling around as Christ followers. And yes, we sometimes stumble and fumble around. But who gets to decide whether we're worthy enough to be on this team? God says, I'm the one that puts you on the team, so I'm the only one who can kick you off. And I won't kick you off. We can fumble the ball every time they give us a chance in practice. And you know what's going to happen at game time? He's going to call on us to take the ball and take it across the goal line. He's going to call on us to shoot the free throw, even though we haven't hit a free throw in the last 10 years. He's going to call on us to go to the bat even though we strike out every time, it seems like. And others may say, I don't know if you deserve to be on that team. And God says, who are they to decide who's on my team? And now it gets fun. Because the fifth question that he asks in the interview is the only question that he actually gave an answer in this series of verses. The fifth question is, who can separate us from the love of the team captain? That's Romans 8, 35. The verse is, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, 
or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? And the fact that he's asking the question presumes that all of us will suffer some part of these things in our lives. That we don't get to go live a life free from these things. We're going to have persecution or distress or even just perils of life. Hurricanes and tornadoes and accidents, war and whatever. It's going to happen. And the question is, well, will any of those things separate us from the love of Christ? And I love the answer. The only question he answers, verse 37 and 39 of chapter 8 of Romans, and we're going to read the whole thing because these are two of the most significant verses in the Bible, in my opinion. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Overwhelmingly means four touchdowns. <laughs> For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Did he leave anything out? I mean, he handled earth and he went all the way to heaven and says not even angels can separate us from the love of Christ. As mentioned earlier, I've been starting a business, been working on this thing for several years, and this past spring, I hit a moment where I felt overwhelmed. And I asked a few people to pray for me. Now let me make a confession. It's a confession, okay? I don't like to ask people to pray for me. It's not that I don't believe in the power of prayer. I absolutely believe in the power of prayer. And I actually like it when people ask me to pray for them. But I have a pride thing. And I don't like to ask people to pray for me. But I did. And I have a handful of people that I will call on. Because I was feeling a bit overwhelmed with something that I had going. And one of the people I asked to pray for me text me back, gave me a text back and says, I'm on it right now. And I responded back and said, I have a classic David versus Goliath situation. Thanks. That's all I said. I have a classic David versus Goliath situation. You know what his response was? It was shocking. It, it, it shook me to my core. And there was only three words. Three words. He said, David always wins. I'm a lawyer and I was speechless. <laughs> Pastor Mack can do a six-month series on those three words. He said, David always wins. If you actually have a David versus Goliath situation and you're David, don't worry about it. You're good. You're going to win. I feel sorry for the other guy. You better protect his forehead right there. Because <laughs> you're going to win. Here's the problem. Um, sometimes it doesn't feel like we're winning. Now, I did not know they were going to show Zach Smith before today. 
They didn't tell me they were going to do that today. And by the way, in the first service, they showed that. I'm sitting there bawling like a Frenchman. <laughs> okay. It's, it's, it's okay. It's okay. I'm part French too. You saw it. <clears throat> and I'm sitting there going, I can't get up there and talk right now. But the problem is when you're going through cancer treatments, it doesn't feel like you're winning. When, when it's time to write the check and you ain't got enough to write the check, it doesn't feel like you're winning. When your spouse and you are not getting along, it doesn't feel like you're winning. When your children are going wayward, it doesn't feel like winning, does it? When your parents are going wayward, it doesn't feel like you're winning. But I know cancer patients that went through treatment and died and they won. I know people that have suffered financial ruin and won. I know people that have suffered broken relationships and won. That's because David always wins. So, what's next? I don't know. That's to be determined. And it's going to be different in each one of our lives. But here's what I do know. If you're a Christ follower, don't worry about it. It ain't a fair fight. Because you're going to win. And if it doesn't feel like you're winning... The game ain't over yet. Let's end with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word that you have allowed us to share, even though it was written by Paul years ago. Each word is fresh and new and wonderful and fulfilling to us. Because those of us who follow you can rest. We can rest assured in the fact that we're on the team, we've been selected, we've been called we have a place on the team. And we can rest assured that we're going to win. Though it may be painful at times, inconvenient and uncomfortable at times, we know we're going to win. If we have anyone here who is not a Christ follower, you've never stepped across the line, we have this to say to you. It's not a question of whether you've been seen. 
you've already been scouted out. It's not a question of whether there is a place for you. I assure you there is. And that's not a question. There is not a question that you're being called. Even at this very moment. The only question is whether you're going to answer. I'm in. Count me in. I'm tired. I'm tired of losing. And though it may be somewhat painful and uncomfortable, I know if I do this, I will start winning. If that is your prayer, if that is you, and that tugging that you feel in your heart, that's you. It's time. I'm going to ask you to do something with every head bowed, with every eye closed, with every heart praying for salvation, with every heart praying for that decision today, now. I'm going to ask you to do something definitive. If you're stepping across the line to accept that call today, with every eye closed, I want you to raise your hand slowly but definitively. And if that is you, as you raise your hand, that is, and this is, the most important decision that you've made in your life. And at this church, we like to do that fifth thing we talked about. We like to celebrate with you, and we do that. As you put your hands down, we put ours together to celebrate.